Thank you. Welcome to the Pat Mayo Experience, the final major of the golf season, the 148th Open Championship, which from this point on, after I got that out of the way, I'll be referring to as the British Open, purely for SEO purposes only. And that's a British Open. Let's go. The U.S. Open, British Open, Canadian Open. We got all these Opens. The British Open, you know, it, it sounds pretty good. Open Championship people will know what you're talking about unless they're not golf fans and they'll have no fucking idea. So that's what we're going to go with. If you out there want to get into a draw for lots of bucks this week, I got a $250,000 prize to give away. I got a few hundred dollars, a few fifties, a few twenties. Here's what you do. And there's going to be giveaways happening all week. I got a show today. I have a show on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday that you can get into all these draws. One of three ways to do it. Smash the like button for the episode. Leave your DraftKings handle in the comment section. Tell me what you think the winning score is going to be at Portrush for the British Open this year in 2019. The other way to do it. Subscribe, download, rate, and review the Pat Mayo Experience podcast. Five stars, DraftKings handle, something nice about the show. Boom. You're in a draw for that grand prize as well. Also, if you follow me on Instagram, at the PME, if you comment on any of the British Open content that goes up there, just leave your DraftKings handle in the comments section after giving it a quick heart, and boom, you're in the draw for all of those prizes too. Probably somewhere around like, I don't know, $750 to $1,000 being given away over these four shows, so remember to tune in, especially to the audio podcast. And if you want to get into the Pat Mayo Experience DraftKings Open Listener League, it's $15 to enter. You have three max entries. There is no rake. 6,000 spots are available. $90,000 in guaranteed money. You can find that in the description of this podcast. If you're watching on Facebook, in the description of the video. If you're watching on YouTube, we cannot post the link on YouTube in fear of getting banned for life once again. I mean, I guess it wasn't for life. We're now back. But I'll have the link to the Facebook link where you can go enter that right now. It is the best contest on DraftKings. No rake, $90,000 guaranteed. This filled up by Tuesday for the U.S. Open, so you might want to get in as quickly as possible, even if you have to reserve your seat to do that. Plus, I want to let everyone know to become a member at FantasyNational.com right now. All the stats, all the tools that you'll need to at least give yourself a better chance. Ownership projections, event simulator, it's all up there. FantasyNational.com. Become a weekly, monthly, or annual member today. Now that I got that out of the way, it's time to dig in to the 148th British Open from Portrush Golf Links in Ireland. And joining me, I'm very, very excited to have on the show the managing editor of the 15th Club. It is Justin Ray at Justin Ray Golf on Twitter. My man, thank you for coming on. I'm so excited to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate the warm welcome. So the first thing that I want to get into is actually the course. Right now, it's looking like it's going to play just over 7,300 yards as a par 71. Normally, it plays as a par 72. Uh, They're going to take away one of those shorter par fives, convert it into a par four for the British Open. But what do we expect from this course as it compares to maybe some of the other open venues? I think the universal truth with everybody looking at this golf course is that we don't entirely know what to expect. And we've only got... We've only got one tournament that's really been held there, and it was seven years ago on the European Tour. And since then, they've modified, I think it's four to five holes that are going to be different than what we saw that week um, at the Irish Open in 2012. So um, I would expect a typical links style, you know, links, links type golf. You're going to be able to, I think, glean a lot from what you saw last week at the Irish Open, this week at the Scottish Open. And then the variable that you always have at the Open Championship is whether or not the wind blows. I mean, if the wind blows, 
the course has its de- has its defense there, and the score is going to be a little bit higher. Uh, and then if not, though, I mean, you could see like the scores we saw Thursday at the Scottish Open where everybody was going low, and there were 65s and 66s everywhere, and almost you know most of the field was under par. Um, you know, you could see a lot of that if there's no wind. I mean, it's the ultimate thing every time you head to an Open Championship is that um, you know what you're going to get course wise. The RNA is going to set the course up. And let, you know, it, hey, if 20 under is the winning score, like it was for Henrik Stenson at Troon three years ago, great. If five over is the winning score, great. The RNA doesn't care either way. It's kind of the antithesis of the USGA's approach to par. So um, it all kind of depends on if the wind blows. Um, I would be looking at a lot of guys who have had success on links courses in recent years and, and try to take it from there. But the truth be told is that we don't really have a ton of information about this course going into it. Yeah, so from the reading that I've done, and shout out to one of the viewers out there who actually sent me a screenshot hole by hole of the scorecard he got at the course when he was there. So I've dug into that. I've listened to player interviews. I even tried to call Graham McDowell's brother. He did not return my call, so I don't have any inside info from him. He is a greenskeeper at the course, though. So five new greens have been added since 2012, eight new tee boxes, ten new bunkers, although it will still have the fewest amount of bunkers in British Open history. There's two new holes, a long par five, number seven, and a par four, number nine. They've actually slashed number 17 and 18 from 2012 out of it. Number five can be drivable if you got the wind at your back, but uh, that's going to depend on the day that it comes. And they plan to have the greens running as firm and as fast as possible. But again, that's going to be severely impacted by the weather. As it comes to trying to either bet on this or make daily fantasy picks, right? just try to prognosticate out in general. How long would you wait to actually submit a lineup or make a pick or make a bet without having seen the weather? That's a good question. I mean, typically when I've been over there covering it here the last, you know, 10 years or so, uh, I would wait till Wednesday afternoon to go make my walk over to the, uh, to the betting window. Um, you know, just because it's so different based on the conditions you expect. And, you know, that being said, I mean, that, that might be my strategy, but truth be told is, you could have an instance like we had, I think it was an O2 where nobody saw the squall that was coming on, I think it was Saturday, and then it just, everything went crazy for two hours. So, you know, out there on the British Isles, up there, especially as far north as we're going to be um, in Northern Ireland, um, you know, the weather can come out of nowhere, and it's kind of tough to say. But, you know, I typically would like to wait, I'd at least like to wait till after the Scottish Open is over. Um, I would, you know, usually I would wait till Wednesday till I heard how some of the players were talking in um, – in the press center and the media center after I've been able to talk to a few of them leading into the tournament, that might give me a little bit more of an idea about how the course is playing, but um, you know, then the balls go in the air and everything kind of goes out the window. So, I mean, my best intentions are usually, you know, I, I put my best foot forward by waiting a little while, especially with this tournament, but you know, it's, it's why we love doing this is because everything's so unexpected. Well, this isn't necessarily a first-time course in the open rotation. It's been 68 years since the British Open was last at Royal Portrush, so I think that uh, we can almost call it a first-time course, and we've seen this a lot over the past few weeks, whether it be on the PGA Tour, whether it be at the Scottish Open, the 3M was a new course, Detroit before that, that we just didn't have any data on. So when we're trying to predict out the metrics that we want to look at for a new course, do you try to... basically dumb it down to the stuff that is truly important every single week, whether it be 
ball striking, around the green, par four scoring, that kind of thing? Or would you still look at the course and look at the length of the holes or even say, hey, this course actually has wider fairways than most links courses, but if you hit it off the fairway, then all of a sudden you're absolutely in the shit and you might not be able to get it out. Therefore, scrambling <laughs> comes into play. Like, what would you look for for like key metrics at a course where you don't really know how it's going to play at an RNA or even professional level? I think you can categorize different venues based on you know, courses that they're similar to, and you can try to glean past results from similar type courses and try to translate that into what they might do here. Obviously, you know, you can look through link setups, um, you know, on the European tour over the last, let's say seven, eight years. And I think you can, you can get together a, a pretty good list of players who have a lot of success um, on links courses. Uh, I did a piece for the European tour last week where we looked at who were the best links players over the last eight, nine, 10 years in terms of strokes gained per round. And Henrik Stenson was at the top of that list. And one of the guys we identified was going into the week at the Irish Open was John Rahm, who didn't have a huge body of work on those types of courses, but is a stellar links player. Um, and it, you know, you know, the fruit came to, you know, it came to fruition on the weekend last, uh, last week at the Irish Open when he went crazy low and 62 on Sunday and won. So I think you can group together types of courses that are similar um, whether it's, let's say this hasn't been the case this year, but let's say it's a new event on the West coast. You can kind of take, you can take maybe results like from Tory Pines, from uh, the Bob Hope, from, from courses that have polo, whatever it might be. And you can kind of clump those together and maybe glean some, some results out of that. That being said, you know, maybe it's, it's kind of the intellectual tug of war we always have when we're trying to predict which players left success on what kinds of courses, past success on this venue on courses like this versus current performance and you can always kind of make arguments back and forth. So a nice balance of the two between, you know, guys who have had success on links courses and who have some good form coming into the week for the open championship. One of the biggest issues that a lot of people have as it pertains to the British Open specifically, and even trying to get in on the Scottish or the Irish or any sort of European crossover event uh, where American players are coming over and playing and then people get all hyped up to bet on it because the fields in Europe are better than the fields in America, like we've seen this week between the Scottish Open and the John Deere Classic, which isn't quite, I guess, a corn fairy event. It's like a quadruple A event. It's somewhere <laughs> in between. There's a few guys in the Open. I mean, when Streelman got his invitation, he's like, I am getting out of here i'm heading overseas immediately i have no need for this anymore but when it comes to stats like you know when i'm on fantasy national i'm looking at you know, the entire stat database that's for pga tour only if i go to the european tour site i can find the strokes gain data but it's kind of wonky i don't know how to trust it only because i don't know about the specific quality of these fields like if you're gaining strokes on the field in oman i really have no way to quantify that of how good that actually is so from a statistical perspective trying to weigh between the european tour and those numbers numbers and the PGA tour in those numbers, is there any best way to look at that? Or do you just kind of have to play it by ear? Um, that's a great question. I think you might need to have to sort of play it by ear. The point you make about, um, you know, strokes gained against a weaker field is obviously, it's obviously not as significant as if you gain strokes against the field at the U S open or the players championship or something like that. So it's a great point you make. Um, you know, I think you can take it piece by piece. Um, you know, there are lots of examples of guys who've gone on great runs on the European tour the last few years, but you've got to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt because they get to the bigger stage and, you know, it's, they're not quite the elite level caliber player. Like if you won, let's say Shabanker Sharma last year on the <laughs> European tour, one young player won twice in a span of, I think three or four weeks, 
you know, has vaulted up the world rankings, gotten to a WGC, gotten contention. You know, he gained a lot of strokes on fields by winning against those weaker in those weaker tournaments. Um, but it wasn't necessarily the same as, as being really successful in the PGA tour. I guess it's kind of a long winded way of answering and saying, yeah, you just kind of got to kind of take it, you know, it, no information has value without, you know, great context. And you can't just take the, uh, like you said, you can't just take raw strokes, gain totals or statistics on, um, in an event without knowing kind of the context and the competition and, and all the details of the event. So, um, very long-winded way, sorry, of answering. Yeah, I kind of just take it take it by ear and take it case by case. Yeah, I, I feel like it almost comes down to a Lynx thing as well. Like, John Rahm and Henrik Stenson, excellent Lynx players, yet for whatever reason, that hasn't translated for John Rahm at the British Open specifically, uh, which is mm-hmm. kind of strange. It translated in France last year. He played really well. Obviously, at the Irish Open, he's had a great deal of success over the past few seasons. And just when you think about, like, Lynx, like, where is John Rahm awesome? It's on these Lynx courses that aren't the Open Championship, sorry, British Open, uh, and in California. Like, is there any sort of correlation between those two things um that's a good question i i i think it's it's tough to say he's a guy who's talented in a lot of different ways he's obviously you know he's explosive off the tee he has a very underrated short game um i think the common thread among all the best players in the world is usually um who are the best players with mid to short irons um he's a pretty good mid to short iron player but he gains the majority of his strokes off the tee um, you know, maybe there's something to be said about the putting styles on West Coast type courses and comparing them to Lynx courses. Um, a guy like Brant Snedeker nearly won. He set like a 54-hole scoring record at the Open Championship. I think it was either 12 or 13. Um, and he's always had great success on the West Coast, too. So maybe there's I'm just totally off the top of my head trying to piece those two thoughts together. Um, you know, there could be some validity to that. But, you know, another thing, too, is, you know, I'd like to get a bigger a bigger breadth of history and, and a bigger, you know, more information on, on God, you know, the more data you have, the more history you have, the more, you know, um, more significant data you've got to pull from the better your insights are going to be. And I think you need a little bit more time. Um, we've got a, a good window of it for John Rahm and, you know, maybe this is his week at the open championship as well as he's been playing and as good of a links player he is. But, um, you know, I'd like to have a little bit more data to go off that and make that kind of, make that kind of affirmation. Well, one of the big things, I guess, maybe if we're kind of spitballing it of what are the similarities between some of these link style European courses and the West coast, you talk about the greens, like the, the, Poana greens on the West Coast are a bit bumpier, and there does seem to be a distinct, I mean, even between the POA that the players saw at the PGA Championship versus the POA that they see in California year after year after year, it tends to be a bit bumpier on the West Coast, and I've always kind of thought that's how a lot of these European greens roll, but everything that I look at for Portrush makes it seem like these are sheets of glass that it's going to be pressed and cut in a way where it probably more resembles bent grass than POA. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that too. And the other aspect I've heard that the rough is going to be extremely penalizing, which is totally not, wasn't the case at all at Carnoustie last year. Um, You know, it was more wispy and uh, wasn't necessarily a big penalty if you miss off the tee. Now this is just colloquially, it's conversationally hearing from people that the rough's going to be really difficult. We'll have to wait and see till we get out there, but that would be different than a typical, you know, most typical link setups year to year. Um, That would be a big difference too. So um, you know, I think it's tough to make that connection going into it. I'd love to be able to because it would give me a much better chance of making some money on the back end. But um, 
it's it's an interesting conversation to have, but I think it's it's tough to really bridge those two together. So if we were going to kind of break down the four key components of strokes gained off the tee approach around the green in putting, because these are wider fairways, and I guess the wind will really determine this. Like if the wind is down, it would lead me to believe that a player like John Rahm or Rory or Dustin or Brooks, these guys that absolutely mm-hmm. mash it off the tee with the wider fairways are just going to give it a go on almost every hole and try to turn this into a pitch and putt, which if there's no wind, it seems like they'd be super successful at doing that. What would you think that, let's say we saw the winds were around like, I don't know, 15 to 20 miles per hour on average. And if we saw it was less than that, would you load up on these great off the tee players? And if it wasn't, you might want to take a more relaxed approach and look at sort of the Molinari's of the world. Guys that can still get it out there, but do put a premium on accuracy. Yeah, that's a good question. I would definitely, if the wind is down, it tends to bring the, as you said, the guys who can hit it a long way, their advantages are more, obviously they're, they're more pronounced and they're going to have more opportunities to shoot lower scores. Guys like DJ Kepka, Tommy Fleetwood's in that group, uh, Rory McIlroy, obviously when the wind gets picked up and all the audibles are thrown into play, it just brings more and more players into the mix. So it makes it even tougher to, to, to pick who's going to succeed. Um, it's short, it can shorten the course. It can change the course. It can make it, you know, it, it just brings all these different pack factors and players back in who might not necessarily have a shot at like, let's say when we went to Beth page at the PGA championship, every, we just all kind of knew, all right, you've got to crush the golf ball to have success on the golf course. Whereas if we get wind next week at Royal port rush, you know, that's when it brings in 40, 50, 60 other players that may not have a chance if the, if the wind's down and the guys are able to bomb it and make a ton of birdies. So um, yeah, I think that theory has some validity that if you see that the wind is going to be down next week, you, you want to, you want to make your picks and make your team, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and the forecasts are for no wind. I would definitely load up on guys who can hit a long way and take advantage of of some of those um, – take advantage of their distance. One, when I was uh, – the, the piece I mentioned on European Tour from last week about players who had a lot of success in Lynx golf recently, one of the guys that stood out to me was Ryan Fox, who hits it a mile. It's his best trait. Um, he's kind of – I think he's from New Zealand or Australia. He, he's had a moderate amount of success over on the European Tour – um, but he didn't fit the mold for a guy who you would think would have a ton of link success, but in a, an isolated kind of collection of eight to 10 rounds, the wind was down and he was able to pound the golf ball and make a ton of birdies and put together some low scores. And that's a really, you know, it was really a profound, distinct example of a guy who, when the wind is down, is able to take advantage of his distance and, and make a bunch of birdies. So if we see those kind of, um, if we see that kind of trend with the wind, uh, going into next week, yeah, I would definitely load up on guys who can, who can bomb it and make some low numbers. Yeah, as someone who backed Ryan Fox at last year's Irish Open, only to see Russell Knox steal it away from him, and I was like, you know what? He hits it a mile. I'm going to back him at Beth Page, and he was like nine over on the first day. It's like, oh, thanks a lot for showing up, Ryan Fox. I'm kind of with yeah. you on that type of player. Like, and we saw this somewhat, yeah, a little bit in France last year. Like before the Ryder Cup happened, they had you know Le de France. Uh, all of a sudden, there was just a whole bunch of bombers at the top of the leaderboard, and yet once they ratcheted up the conditions and knew the European team that was coming in, they completely changed the style of play that you would need in France in order to be successful at that course. So uh, it can be dependent year to year on course to course. And like you mentioned with the wind, I would think that if the conditions are down, uh, normally at these majors, I mean, I lose a lot betting on these majors because I always enjoy to take myself a good long shot. And outside of Gary Woodland, the favorites have constantly been dominating at the majors over the past two years. But if the conditions are down here, it does feel like 
one of the top 15 guys in the world is going to win this again. They'll have the tools to get to minus 24 if that score is out there. Yeah, we've had a crazy run of we haven't had an off the wall major winner in a long time. We've actually had 31 consecutive majors won by guys in the top 50. The last guy outside the top 50 in the world to win a major was Keegan at the 2011 PGA. That's an incredible run of guys who are basically, and most of those in that span have been in the top 25, 30 in the world. Jimmy Walker was 48th when he won the PGA championship at Baltimore, but he had won four five, six times in the previous couple of years. It's not like he was, you know, it wasn't Darren Clark. It wasn't Ben Curtis or Sean McKeel. It wasn't a winner like that. We haven't had one of those guys in a long time. And I don't know if it's a confluence of conditions, if the cream of the crop and the best players in the world are just that much better than the rest of the pack at this point. Um, but it's been an unbelievable run of seeing a lot of chalk come through and win in these big championships. Yeah, I would think that the the two tournaments that would lend themselves the most to a surprise winner would be the U.S. Open or the British Open, just mainly uh-huh. depending on what the conditions are going to be. Because if it's going to be a super windy track, then all of a sudden, like you mentioned before, it brings more of the field into play. If that was going to be the case and we knew it was going to be super windy, Uh, in this theoretical world would it be like a european link style player that you would go after or would it be like the snedegers of the world or some of these guys like the ryan moore like that type of player that can gain with his irons gain off the tee and keep the ball low enough that you know they can make enough they can get it to you know minus six minus seven i always think that brennan grace is sort of the guy that i look to in these circumstances where you know the worse the conditions get the better he seems to perform relative to the field (laughs) yeah yeah i would kind of one guy that sticks out to me and he's, he's a name that's always much bigger the week before the Open Championship at the John Deere, but he's actually been one of the most consistent American Lynx players the last 15 years, and that's Zach Johnson. I know he's had a terrible season. He's outside the top 100 in the world for the first time in, I think, a decade, um, but he's been one of the most consistently successful Lynx players. I think he has the most rounds of 67 or better at the Open Championship since 2010 of any player. Um, I, I, that's kind of the player I would look at a veteran who, if it, if the winds are up, like you said, like Ryan Moore kind of fits that mold a little bit, not necessarily a ton of great league success for Ryan. Um, Brant Snedeker fits that mold, like a guy who knows how to manage around a course is going to be patient, know when to take his chances. Um, you know, I would look at, if you're looking at a European guy that fits that mold, um, you know, man, put me on the spot. Uh, Andy Sullivan. Yeah, maybe an Andy Sullivan, the guy who played great today. I mean, you know, he's a guy who doesn't hit it very far. And, you know, he can make birdies and spurts, but he's not the most consistent guy in the world. Um, you know, I, Graham McDowell hasn't played horrible the last few months. I think he's going to be really busy, you know, basically as an ambassador th- that week. That may take him take his attention a little bit away from play. Um, but he's, he's had a – he's kind of had a nice little resurgent few months um, recently. You know, yeah, but I'd stick to one of the kind of that mole I talked about, more of a veteran guy who's got good links experience, good, like a good links background. Brant Snedeker is a great name there. And then, um, you know, Zach Johnson is, a, is an underrated kind of sleeper guy that we're never, we never talk about yet. You know, he's won a major at Augusta National and St. Andrews, and that's a very small group. Yeah. What is it? Him, Tiger, and Jack, maybe? Jack and Faldo, I want to say. That might be it. There's probably a couple more I'm missing off the top of my head, but that's kind yeah, of it's a small group. <laughs> Uh, if I go to fantasynational.com and put the settings to windy AF, which is anything over 17 <laughs> miles per hour, uh, and turn it to relative scoring to par as difficult. Now, it's a very small sample with a lot of these guys. I'm like 
11 rounds, 20 rounds, but in the field strokes gain total from this, you have number one, and I can't believe I'm saying this, so this is where I'm losing all my money next week if it's windy, Luke List, um, Matt Kuchar, Sergio, Dustin Fowler, <laughs> J.B. Holmes, Paul Casey, Jim Furyk, Emiliano Grillo, Adam Scott, and Thomas Peters would be the top 11 players in the world coming into that. That is not the list that I actually expected to see under those conditions. No, I didn't expect to hear the name Luke List. Ricky Fowler is really interesting to me. He's a guy who has had a lot of success on, on difficult golf courses um, in tough conditions. He won a Scottish Open when it was blowing like crazy a few years ago. Um, he would kind of – he's sneaky 30, 31 years old at this point. You know, he is a veteran out here on tour. He's been around for about a decade. He's got a ton of experience in big events. Um, you know, he would kind of fit that mold, I think, of a guy who could break through and have some success. His front nine on Thursday at the Scottish Open didn't instill a lot of confidence in me, but um, he'd also be, he's going to get talked a lot early in the week because, you know, he's obviously, he's the American that the Americans want to see break through and get that major championship. He's, you know, quietly creeping into Phil Mickelson in 2004 territory. He's, you know, he's, he's been around longer than you think. He's not a kid anymore. He's in his thirties. So, um, yeah, but he's got a lot of success on tough golf courses, good win player, probably could have, should have won at Royal St. George's when Darren Clark won, um, like I said, at Scottish Open a few years ago. So Fowler doesn't surprise me, but no, I did not expect to hear Luke List at the top of that. Yeah, and that's always bad news as he is my single favorite player to lose money on every single week. But <laughs> let, me, let me talk to you about this because, I mean, obviously you see all this data uh, and it comes in. And when I run statistical models and things like this, players like, Luke List and Ben Ann, when we think about ball striking, these are the players that get spit out amongst the elite players, yet their putting is just so horrible that they're never going to do anything. What's your take on the predictive nature of putting? Is it okay with some guys? Obviously, round to round and hole to hole, it's going to be different. But if we do look at a large enough sample of putting, does it actually mean something? It's definitely the most difficult thing to predict in the sport. Um, it's the least repeatable trait of a golfer. Um, you know, the swing is much more repeatable, I think, than, than, than a putts. I don't try not to get too nerdy. And no, 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 no. You, you can nerd out on this. It, <laughs> it's definitely the toughest thing to predict um, in terms of what a golfer does. Um, you know, I think if you have a massive amount of information, it can tell you who the best putters in the world are. But even like season to season, it's, it's tough to do. I'll give you an example. Like Jason Day led the PGA Tour in strokes came putting a couple years ago. I think the following year he was like 60th. And then the next year after that, he was first again. So it, even for the guys who are elite putters, the best in the world, Day, Fowler, um, you know, guys like that, it, it can be something that jumps around week to week. I mean, um, yeah, I don't have a terrific answer. I think that it's, it's the toughest thing to predict. Um, the most reliable things to base your base things on are probably strokes gained approach and, you know, if a guy is like a really powerful player, those are the traits that are most repeatable and are going to carry, carry with you week to week. Um, but yeah, putting is definitely something very difficult to predict. And it's especially difficult on Lynx golf courses and then those West Coast uh, Poana courses early in the year. Yeah, the one thing that I've always said to kind of describe it to people who are trying to predict things up, like, oh, Jordan Spieth's a great putter. Obviously, he's going to make all his eight-foot putts, but we've watched him go through eight-month stretches where he misses every four-foot putt. So it seems like he's rectified yeah. that problem uh, as of right now, but it could flip at a moment's notice. But in any given week, J.B. Holmes could be the best putter in the field. We, I've seen it happen, and it, it blows my mind every single time. Then he goes back to being awful J.B. Holmes with the flat stick for like three months, then 
all of a sudden he pops again. But in no tournament is Wes Bryan ever going to outdrive Dustin Johnson off the tee. That's just never going to happen. Correct. Yeah, that's well said. I think there's a human element too when it comes to how we gauge how good of a putter the players we see the most are. Like, for example, we see every round, every shot of every round Tiger plays. We've kind of seen that every every shot, every putt Jordan Spieth hits um, week to week. We see that with, you know, Brooks Kepka now. Um, and I think our perspective, especially our perception of the way Jordan putts, is that it, it's altered a little bit by the fact that we see so many of his opportunities from that distance. Whereas a lot of players – we only see we, – we get a cut of back when they make an 8-foot birdie putt or a 15-foot birdie putt or when they're – they're only on TV when they're shooting 65, 66. It's not, it's not the same kind of, you know, human perception scale that we get to deal with with every player. We see every shot that a few guys hit, and we only see the best of a lot of guys. We don't see – you know, when Ben on shoots 75, we don't see a single shot of it on coverage. We see – I'm picking Ben because he said his name earlier and it popped in my head. Like – you, we only see when he plays really well, when he's contending, when he goes super low, whatever it might be. Whereas, you know, I think our perception of how good or bad of or, or how much Jordan Spieth is struggling putting, whatever, I think that's impacted by the amount of putts we see him hit overall. So let's talk about the TV coverage for a second. Uh, I mean, you're closer to this than I would be as you're normally on the grounds and talking to a lot of these people. And you've seen the way that the, the process happens. Why is it that they show so few shots? Um, it's a great question. I've never been a producer, like in the chair, bouncing back and forth. I think there's a distinct difference between, um, certain broadcasts. I've got the privilege of working with Sky Sports a lot this year. Who's way um, better. Sky Sports is like, if I can find a stream for Sky Sports versus whatever the fantastic. CBS or the NBC coverage is, that's what I'm watching. They'll show three times as many shots. Yeah. I know personally from working with the NBC coverage that their goal is to show as much golf as humanly possible. Like they, I think it's a, it's more of an approach approach to the kind of philosophy of of sports on TV. Um, you know, the NBC crew wants to show as much golf as possible, and CBS is more concerned with the narrative. They're more concerned with telling the story as it happens, and the result is you see way more golf shots on NBC than you do on CBS, and it's more of just a from a professional production standpoint, you know, one versus the other. Now, working with Sky, the number one difference that I see working with them is there's not nearly as much sponsored crap during the broadcast. Like there's no, and time for the FedEx update or whatever. There's, there's none of that stuff during the broadcast. And you don't really, you don't notice it at first, but at the end of the golf, you're like, wow, that was really enjoyable. It didn't seem choppy. Um, you know, there wasn't, a, there wasn't a ball on the green and then they cut back and showed the shot that got the ball there. Like there's none of that stuff to get it out of order. Um, it's, it's a really enjoyable experience, but to Best answer your question, I, I, I tend to err on the NBC side of the philosophy of show as much golf as possible, show as much action as possible, let the fans determine what the narrative is. Um, but, yeah, I, <laughs> I, wish, I wish week to week we got uh, the same kind of, you know, sh- let's see as many shots as we possibly can type thing. And I do know at the Open, since NBC has got it, they make it a point the first two days to show at least one shot of every single player in the field. The philosophy was – if you're good enough to be in this golf championship, you're good enough to be on TV. And they pulled it off each of the last few years. So yeah, yeah. I learned 
with them the last couple of years. I, I'm huge on, you know, I'll wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning Eastern time and just watch from moment one until I fall asleep at some point, and then I'll get back up and continue watching it. The Open Championship does have the best coverage in terms of full length, but it's shocking to me with all the cameras that are out there, and they're set up on tripods at each of the holes, especially for the majors. Like, it's tougher to do at the Barbasol or the John Deere Classic just because the interest isn't necessarily there, but I'm still stunned that there's no package that NBC is selling for like, hey, for $20 in this tournament, you can watch whoever you want on demand. We got the cameras. We're following them around. If you want to see it, you can pay for it. Like, I would pay for that. Wouldn't uh, anyone who bets or plays DraftKings or does anything like that, wouldn't they pay for that? I would I would say logistically it's a, probably a little more difficult than you might be leading on. Um, they have, you know, they have the abilities to maybe have camera crews with, you know, eight, nine, ten groups, but I don't think that the sheer manpower of needing, you know, cameras to be able to show every shot of every player in the field. I'm not sure that the cost benefit would balance out with that. Um, I do know, I know it's frustrating, especially for people who are fans of all sports like me. Um, you know, we wish we could see everything we're possibly interested in. I know for forever, years and years ago, it would be so frustrating that like Tiger Woods would be playing Friday of a major championship and he's not on TV because the coverage hasn't started yet. And you're just wondering, like, what are we doing? Like, well, this is the best. This is the cheat. This is the reason why we're all here. Like, why is this not on TV? And at least we've come a long way, I think, in the last few years in terms of golf on TV, in terms of giving more access. But, um, you know, what we saw at the Masters, where basically every shot was on the app seconds after it happened. I mean, that was incredible and revolutionary. And hopefully we get to that point eventually, maybe whether it's with drone cameras or some other outside the box type idea that that can make it happen. But I, I mean, we at this moment, there isn't like the sheer manpower to see every single player, every shot on demand. It just doesn't exist. Yeah, I, but I just, I, I'm with you that the logistics of it right now are close to impossible to pull this off, but it, yeah. Does it at least seem to you like they're getting, they're moving towards that? Or is there just, hey, the Masters can do it. That's great on the map. Look at the app. The app for the Masters was out of this world. And even as we speak today, the PGA like screwed up their app. So they just have the website leaderboard in their app and it's atrocious. The US Open one, you yeah. couldn't, you couldn't use. The PGA Championship one was horrible and not up to date. Like hopefully the British Open app is going to be pretty good. It's been okay over the years, but it just, it seems so strange that the Masters is running all this proprietary stuff yet they have one single tournament all year and their coverage and their app and their technology is way better than a tour that puts stuff on every single week. Like the European tour, like leaderboard websites, super tough to use as well. Like finding the strokes gain data in a live tournament for a European tour event is just difficult to find. Yeah. I would say for the masters, I mean, they, I think you answered your own question. They have a ton of money and they only have to worry about one tournament a year. So they're able to focus all their efforts, all their IT, all their technology, all their resources, servers, all that stuff. It's all focused on those four days. So I think that makes it a little bit easier than the traveling circus week to week on the PGA tour where you're uprooting yourself, moving it to a new place in an, in another state, sometimes another country. Um, I think there's a difficulty there, but you know, I'm with you. I'm, I'm a fan first and foremost, you know, in addition to, to working in the sport. And I, I would love for everything to be, you know, seamless and perfect. And I wonder why certain things don't work and, you know, why, why one's better than the other. But, you know, that's kind of the, the, the we don't have one overriding, 
you know, league that runs everything. Our four biggest championships are not run by the PGA tour every year. You know, the biggest weeks of the year, it'd be like if major league baseball outsourced the world series to another company, like it's, it's a completely foreign thing um, with the exception of maybe like tennis to where, you know, your biggest events are run by a different entity than you have, you know, week to week on the, the rest of the year. So um, yeah, no, it's frustrating. I do think we're moving in the right direction. I would just, you know, go back in time five, six years. And I mean, do we even have featured groups on Thursday and Friday? Were were we even able to stream, you know, Brooks Kepka's Thursday round at the 3M or Dustin Johnson's Friday at the Canadian Open or whatever it might be? We weren't able to do that. So I think we're moving in the right direction and we'll get there eventually. And, you know, as, as this demand grows and grows and gets bigger and bigger, and it really has just in the time since I've been working the sport the last 10 years or so, I think we'll get to a point where the products evolve and, you know, just kind of the, the natural evolution of the products improving to fulfill the demand of the consumer. It'll get there. It's just going to take time. Uh, do you think that uh, on the topic of seeing where we're progressing, at least in terms of the coverage and with these networks, how long do you think it's going to take until gambling and or daily fantasy is integrated into the broadcast? That's a good question. You know, I think we're, uh, you know, golf uh, in terms of not just gambling, but in everything that we do in terms of presenting it as a product for fans has, it's a privilege um, for the people running the, the media product that the consumer base is older. The consumer base is more reactive. It takes longer um, for the consumer base to get up to speed with what let's say like the NBA fan base is up on or the NFL or MMA or another sports organization. Um, Golf's able to kind of see what they do and then react accordingly because their consumers are a little bit older and they react a little bit slower to get there too. It's like, you know, I would, I had Netflix 10 years ago. My parents got it two years ago. You know what I'm saying? It's like a different kind of, you know, the consumer as the consumer gets older you know, the age and the way they react to trends is a little bit different. So golf's able to do that. And in that, in that sense, I mean, I think like, whereas if you're watching a weeknight NBA game, they'll have DraftKings prices. DraftKings is a sponsor on the court. You know, Daily Fantasy is implemented in it. You know, it happens a lot. I think we're going to gradually get there, but it's a reflection of that kind of slower reaction by the consumers of the sport to where it just kind of takes longer to get to that point. If that makes sense. Um, I think we're going to get there eventually. And I think the golf gambling is so ingrained in golf anyway. It just think about, you know, every time you play a Nassau with your buddies or, you know, you, you, you know, golf over in the UK too. Um, you know, they kind of give you a sideways glance if you're not backing somebody just for you over there you know it's just so much more common and pervasive in the uk and all over europe um we're gonna get there and i think that it's just a matter of time before we talk about it a lot it only stirs interest in the sport to me it gets more people involved it gets the casual sports fan who usually let's say you know look football the nfl is only 17 weeks you've got you know 40 plus weeks for 30 plus weeks the rest of the year that you can you know get a little bit of action on the side Let's get people more involved in golf. It gets them, you know, more interest. I think it's a just a natural thing that's going to happen. It's just like everything else with golf, it just moved a little bit slower. 
It, it seems almost like a perfect fit to go side by side with football. You have a lot of these same networks covering both the sports, at least stateside. And then you have that gap of you know 30 or so weeks where there is no football. And golf is actually structured the most like football as it pertains to mm-hmm. gambling and daily fantasy. You do your research for three, four days, and then it starts. And you can bet in-game if you want or round by round, but the majority of people are just going to pick their outright winner. And the fun of it, too, is unless you're betting on Tiger or Brooks or DJ, which I know just a lot of casual people will go throw $100 on one of those guys or two of those guys and hope that they win. But we've seen a number of times this year, which has made gambling on golf so difficult in the non-major so far, that we're seeing... I mean, Adam Long, 600 to 1. C.T. Pan, 175 to 1. Corey Connors, 200 to 1. Like, there's a chance to win a lot of money uh, for not a whole lot of investment on golf. I feel like if we can kind of explain that to more of the gambling public, that people will be really into betting on golf because the investment just doesn't need to be there like it does for any other sport. Yeah, I like your point, too, that it's most like football. It also ends Sunday night, like pretty much football. I mean, exception of Monday night football. Structured. Like you said, it's structured most like golf and football are most similar in that sense. Um, I've always felt with golf, you just need to have the more you are, the more you learn about it, the more familiar you get with it, the more hooked you are. And, you know, you're in, you, we've got you, you're in for life. And I think that, you know, I think being able to bet on it is a huge window to be able to get more people involved, interested in the game that leads to them buying a set of clubs, playing a couple times a month watching the bigger tournaments and then they get into the small one. I mean, I think it's a great, it's a great gateway drug into this super addictive world of golf. And I think that, um, you know, it's, it's only, only can benefit and is only going to help grow the sport. From what I've seen, at least with a younger demographic, and I'll talk about like 35 and below, we've seen ratings in golf on the golf channel go up, especially for the Thursday and Friday rounds and the demographic. It doesn't seem to be attracting a lot of 45 to 50 year olds. That's not really growing. And as the older people die off, that demographic goes down too. But there's been a spike in basically millennials watching golf. Yet a lot of these people are not actually playing golf. It's because of DraftKings. It's because of the ability to bet on this stuff. And it's the same thing that, you know, you had your fantasy baseball players in the past. They're now moving over to fantasy golf. There's so many good sites where you can really break down and analyze from a statistical perspective that, hey, they ended up just running all these models and playing. They they want to get in on the action. Now, all of a sudden, they're watching it and they might not even be playing it. But as this comes from someone who co-owns a statistical golf website, shout out fantasynational.com everyone should become a member right now but is there a point where we look too much at the numbers as it pertains to golf just because this isn't baseball it's not a three outcome thing the course changes every week the field strength changes every week how much should we really be influenced by the numbers and like what's a decent range like we talk about course form versus recent form should we be looking at the past 75 rounds to set a baseline for a player like how do you think that should work when we're trying to analyze the sport are you talking about when you're trying to make a pick? Or? Yes. I mean, to, as, as retroactive analysis, I think it works really well. Here's how exactly this person took apart this course, and we can really find out with statistics what they did well. But that's after the yeah. fact. If we're trying to project out forward, I find that is a bit more difficult. And sometimes I'm a victim of this, too, and I'm probably a... You know, I'm the one propagating a lot of this stuff sometimes too, that you know, it's easy to write about for content. Uh, you can put it out there and logically it makes a lot of sense. Hey, this guy is lights out from 125 to 175 yards. The plurality of approach shots this week are going to come from that range. Then you look at the scoreboard and he's plus seven. You're like, what the fuck happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wish I, I wish I knew that answer. I'd be a wealthy man. Um, 
you know, it's, I think there can be a little bit of paralysis uh, if you look into it too much. Um, you can't see the forest for the trees uh, to use that adage sometimes, but look, I think it depends on context. It depends on the value of the information. Um, and that is always going to change week to week. I think your um, comparison to baseball, you know, the three true outcomes thing, you know, it's, it, it is much more, it's much simpler in terms of what can happen. There's fewer possible outcomes, whereas golf there's, it's basically infinite. If you got 155 player field and they each hit about 70 shots a day, like there's so many different things that can happen. Um, but I think in that vein, because there is so much, there is so much that could happen. There are so many more players. The sport is global. There's um, more opportunities for that information to be useful. Um, I think it lends itself to more information being relevant. Now, you might end up with a C of it, but I think it's up to, you know, if you subscribe to, you know, let's say a, a very valuable publications like the 15th club newsletter or fantasynational.com, they can sift through those things for you and, and give you, you know, something that's going to help you make your pick. But um, I'm obviously, you know, tongue in cheek there, but you know, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's a good point you make that you get to a point where it could be too much, but I think, you know, there's always a ton of value in it. And look, I think it makes it more interesting as someone who, you know, loves advanced NBA stats. And, you know, I, I got into a wormhole a few weeks ago with um, ESPN's new metric of measuring offensive and defensive line strength. You know, I love this stuff. This is what I do for a living. So um, I might be the wrong guy to ask because I'm going to give you total positive propaganda on the subject. But um, you can get to a point where it's too much. Um, especially like I'm in the, I'm in the business, uh, a lot of times of storytelling too. It's not just predictive analysis and numbers, you know, I've got to tell, sift through the information and find out what's the most interesting thing, the smartest thing, the most relevant thing, what's going to have the most resonance in terms of telling the story of what happened or what could happen. Um, you've got to find what's most important, what's most significant. And that's the challenge we all face if you're trying to use these tools in order to make a pick, or if you're trying to tell the best story, you've got to, you've got to get into the if you get into the data, you got to dig through, find out what's most important. Um, you make that decision and, you know, hey, maybe at the end of the week, you're depositing something in your bank account because of it. Uh, as it pertains to gambling, and if we just kind of parse this down, you have your outright winners, you have your top five, top 10, top 20 market to make the cut market, head-to-head -head tournament matchups, or even round-by-round, round, or hell, hole-by-hole matchups are available on sub-sites now uh, that you can do. <laughs> do you find that they're like... For me, I like betting outright winners because it's fun. This is all entertainment for me. I'm not trying to make a living as a professional gambler. And I go into the week every week expecting to lose every cent that I invest. But if I was more serious about it, what do you think are the more, not necessarily predictive markets, but at least easier to project? Would it be tournament head-to-heads, round-by-round head-to-heads if you had the live strokes gain data? Or would it be like a top 20 market? Do you, do you have any take on that? I think round head-to-heads are really difficult. Um, I think... You know, I've tried to just from my own personal experience, like over in the UK, going to go walk into a Ladbrokes or William Hill or whatever, and um, trying to pick what somebody's going to do against another player on the following day. That can be really, I think that can be tough. Um, you know, I tend to think that, you know, I'm, I'm like you, I, I like betting outright winners, but I usually will grab a couple of top tens or top twenties as well. And that I think really dovetails well with, course history this guy's a really good links player um you know let's say like Henrik Stenson is somebody I would definitely make a top 10 bet on next week um so, not necessarily because of recent form 
um, but because he's an outstanding links player, veteran, low ball flight, you know, in the if it gets windy, he his three wood is more of an advantage because the course condenses. Um, you know, he's just somebody who fits that mold. And I like another guy too. Like, let's say a player like I mentioned him earlier, but because he's the prototypical shorter player, like Corey Pavin was 30 years ago. Zach Johnson, you go to a course like a Colonial that's shorter. Like, I'm de- I'm going to throw down. Let's say he's three to one to finish in the top 20 or something like that give it to me for a hundred bucks, you know, why not? You know, because he tends to fit that mold and there's enough data there to where you think, you know, this is a pretty likely outcome. And I think there's a better return on that. And that, that kind of get, I think the more golf you have, like the whole tournament that gives you, I think a better chance for the data that you have existing to reflect what the outcome is than just, you know, one day or even one hole, which is really difficult. The only thing I would throw onto that, I think you can find specific scenarios in head-to-head matchups that you do actively want to target. Like when I'm using Fantasy National, I'm using the in-tournament stats, and I see two guys are paired up in a head-to-head, and on the surface, one guy has very good ball-striking stats, and he just could not hit a putt. Not to say he's going to turn around and hit a whole bunch of putts tomorrow, but it's very difficult to lose four strokes putting in back-to-back rounds. You just don't see it happen. So, obviously, regression to at least somewhere near average would be better, and if he's paired up with a guy who gained, like, five strokes putting on the field, not to say that he can't do it again, it's just very unlikely that he could do it again. But I find that you really... I've gotten to the habit of playing too many of these where before I was playing, you know, if I didn't see anything I liked, I just stayed away. I didn't need to do it. I would wait for my spot and try to pounce on that. And I had a lot of success, but then I had too much success. I was like, I'm great at this. I'm going to start betting a whole bunch of them. And then I started losing all the time. So I think you need to be selective no matter what you're looking at with that. But obviously that's uh, that that's very difficult to do. Uh, what do you make of these like trends heading into tournaments? Cause we always talk about this at the masters because it's the same venue every single season. It's less prevalent with the PGA championship and the, the U.S. Open, but for the British Open, where it is played on link-style courses in a similar part of the world, like, would you put anything into, because I have a few of these here, like, the lead-in form of recent winners has been super, and I wouldn't say predictive, but at least valuable, uh, at least from a narrative perspective, of trying to find who the winner is. So I have two of the past six champion golfers won their last start prior to hosting the Clara Chug. Four of the past six had one victory in two of their last lead-in starts entering the British Open. Five of the past six had one win in their previous five starts. The only outlier was Zach Johnson, who had three top ten finishes in his previous five starts coming in. Like, if someone was coming in with bad form, without top tens or a win as their lead-in, would you maybe just cross them off your list? I might. And there's another number I was looking at um, as it pertains to Tiger. Um, And he hasn't played at all since the U.S. Open. The last player to win the Open Championship, having not played since the U.S. Open, was Johnny Miller in 1976. So that's kind of the, if, you know, I, I think rust is a real thing, especially in the in the middle of the season when guys are really in form. Um, I think that also speaks to, I think form means more as you get later into the season, if that makes sense. I think that um, it's more of a true indicator of what's, what's to come. Um, yeah, no, I, I, one of the trends that I think – at the open championship that is kind of telling is experience mattering. Uh, the average age of the last eight winners at the open championship is about 36 years old, which is five years older than any of the other three majors. Um, you know, I, I think that, I think that matters. I think because you play, it's such a different type of golf that they play week to week, especially on the U S tour. 
Um, I think that experience in that type of play matters. And, you know, having, having a guy who's a veteran who's probably going to know when to take his chances and, you know, how to play Lynx golf, I think that's significant. Um, that's an interesting stat you had. Just thinking about it, um, I know Zach Johnson, like you said, he had one, but he was playing really well going into that open at St. Andrews. Jordan Spieth had won at Travelers right before he won. Frankie Molinari was on. He was red hot. He had gone like win, win, and then he was he finished second at the John Deere the week before he won the Open last year. Um, I mean, obviously, Phil Mickelson in 2013 won the Scottish Open the week before. So, yeah, I think there is something to be said about um, having, you know, having confidence being on a hot streak going into the Open. I think that might be there might be a little more validity to that than you might think like week to week on the PGA tour. So the only other common trait between those six winners, obviously that was going back to Phil was they had at least one top 10 at the British open, uh, at least at one point in the previous five years. So if I go and like extrapolate those trends, there's actually, and you know, the numbers of the John Deere and the Scottish open, which we won't have until they actually conclude. There's only three players that can theoretically win this based off those trends. Rory Brooks and Adam Scott are the three. Wow. Okay. Um, you know what? Rory is incredibly interesting to me. I know that because it's in Northern Ireland, because he's such a revered athlete there, it's such a huge week for him. Um, I think people will maybe want to stay away a little bit because the narrative is just too perfect, but Rory's the only guy with four top five, four top five finishes in the last five years in the open championship. He has the best score to par at the British open in the last five years, the best scoring average, second most birdies and Eagles per round second most rounds in the sixties, despite missing one of those opens. Um, you know, if you just said he's player a, and it's not Rory McIlroy and you took all those course history numbers, took his ability in Lynx golf and where he ranks among the best players in the world on Lynx courses, he would be, he'd be the guy I take. So, um, there's a, but there's a little bit of the human nature of it where you wonder, you know, is this going to be too big, too significant of a national stage, too many people pulling him in different directions. Um, I don't know, but you know, like you said, Rory, Rory fits that mold. And if I got to pick between those three guys, eh, I'm probably going to pick Rory McIlroy based on what he's done at the open championship last five years. or so. Yeah. It's funny with Brooks. He has two top tens at the open in the past, you know, his past four starts there. I actually would like Brooks the best out of that list. Cause Adam Scott falls into that tiger trap that you talked about. Justin Rose is another one. They haven't. And Zan I think Xander Shifley is the other one too. They haven't played since the U S open. That blows my mind that they didn't get any starts in between then and now. Yeah. I figured when I was looking that stat up, the Johnny Miller thing, I figured there had to be an instance where tiger one where he hadn't played or, you know, some like a, a Faldo or somebody or Norman, but you got to go all the way back to the mid seventies for somebody to just not play between the U S open and the open championship and win. I mean, it's, it just doesn't happen. You don't see it. And, you know, it's the, the nature of the condensed schedule makes it a little bit different this year. I mean, there's a little bit, I guess there isn't much of a difference though, between, you know, the timing of the U S open and the open, it's more so the rest of the schedule. So that might probably doesn't really have a big difference. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to believe that those guys wouldn't play. Xander's another one too. I would really like going into the week. Um, but now that you mentioned it, I don't think he's, I don't think he has played since, uh, Pebble Beach. 
Yes, and the only other one that I can find that hasn't played since Pebble Beach is Webb Simpson, another one that just I assume would just play the Scottish Open. Or hell, he actually seems like one of the Americans that would have played in the John Deere Classic. But hey, he's just yeah. he's, he's taken his month off. He's good to go. As it pertains to Rory, and you kind of brought this up with Graham a little bit, and I've noticed over the years, you know, just watching the Canadian Open and actively rooting for a Canadian at some point to win it, which hasn't happened in like seventy years. Uh, Jordan, long Speed, live Pat Fletcher. Yeah, nineteen fifty-three. <laughs> it's been a while. We, we that his win predates Canada's flag that we use today. So that's how long it's been uh, since the Canadian won the Canadian Open. But we used to see this every year with Jordan Spieth when they would play in Dallas, that uh, not the Colonial, when they played the Byron Nelson, that it seems like if you have, if you're the hometown guy and you do have obligations, whether it be extra media, whether it be getting people tickets for the event, that it's in your hometown, you're supposed, you're the star, the hometown guy that, that never really works out well for anyone in golf. Especially this in this instance with Northern Ireland. I mean, listening. To, I was listening to David Faraday, who's from Northern Ireland, talk about um, this championship. It's the biggest sporting event in the history of the country. I mean, for the last 60, 70, 80 years, you've been able to walk up to the gate the week of the Open and buy a ticket. You didn't have to buy in advance. You just bypass. Hey, we're all in a big field here in Scotland. We got plenty of room for you. You can't do that this week. They're sold out and they're not selling tickets at the gate. Like that's how popular, crowded, crazy, electric, just cracking atmosphere that we're going to have at the open. And I think that feeds into it. Now, look, Rory's a guy who sees giant moments in his career. We know that there's a reason why he's got four majors and big wins all over the world and is already a Ryder cup legend. And, you know, there's reasons behind that, but you know, like you said, with, with speed, I think that, his best finish at the Byron Nelson is still what he had when he was 16 years old. It is. I mean, that's, that's a testament to how, how when you're the hometown favorite, when you've got all those demands on you, it's tough, especially in golf when you don't have, you got a caddy, but you don't have a team to lean on. You know, it's not like you're, you're pretty much out there by yourself. So um, that's one thing that kind of scares me a little bit with Rory, but from a storytelling perspective, I mean, it would be other than I think tiger winning, it would be the absolute perfect thing to happen for golf and for the atmosphere and for everything that could go right next week. Well, narrative-wise, if we were to power rank who the best, I mean, best for golf is always Tiger, just because it's that's yeah. going gonna to resonate. <laughs> so he's number one. But you think that Rory would be number two. Who would be number three on that list as best for golf if they won? Would it be Ricky or potentially Phil? Oh, that's a good question. See, the first thing that popped in my head was Brooks Kepka, but I, I think... I don't, know if, I don't know if Brooks winning all... Of, the time is great for golf or not? Because people don't. Really I don't see- know either. I, I it's just the first thing that popped in my head, and now thinking about it, I'm not sure. I think you you might be right. That might be the way to go. I think it might be Ricky Fowler. Actually, you bring that up. I think that's a now Phil winning the U.S. Open, like it would have been like at Pebble on his birthday. Like that would have been too good to be true. That's storybook stuff. Um, I think in the non-Tiger pantheon. Number two would be Rory, and I would put Ricky Fowler number three. I'm interested to hear what you would think. I think that would be it. Just it seems like it's I would throw just because of Phil's like new online presence, which everyone is just as someone who hated Phil for like 20 years and immediately did a 180 on him when he hit that stupid putt at uh, at Shinnecock last year. I was like, this is the best. Like, go for it, Phil. Just just tell everyone to fuck off. It is perfect. And ever since then, he's like embraced just. 
He's embraced internet culture, and I, I'm all over. He doesn't care what's going on. He was lipping Kucher on Instagram on the way up on Magnolia Lane this year at the Masters. It's fantastic. So now I'm actively rooting for Phil. And just having, like, an old dude, Phil, one more run, and maybe he gets another Masters. Maybe he has another shot. I don't think that Wingfoot's going to be particularly kind to Phil next the next time around. Uh, not that it was so great for him last time around. I mean, the first 71 holes were fine for him. The 72nd, yeah. not so hot. So probably bad vibes coming from him there. Just a win for him, just because he's probably the second most known golf on the planet would go a long way but it's probably Ricky at number three I'm curious of all these like younger players and I know not all of them are in the field like we won't see Matthew Wolf uh we're not going to see Morikawa we're I mean I think Neiman might be in the field I can't remember now I don't actually know he's not in the field but if some of those guys get in or even the Brysons of the world or the or the Hideki's really he's only like 27 like 27 and under guys is there one that you could point to that would be like hey this would be huge for golf if this guy could win and I think it might be Bryson only because he's such a polarizing guy I love Bryson I actively root for Bryson but most people I know hate his guts yeah I'm kind of I'm kind of on both sides of the fence with Bryson you know I think he's look you have to be incomprehensibly talented to win the NCAA and the uh, U.S. Amateur in the same year I mean it's an incredibly small club Jack Tiger Phil Ryan Moore and Bryson I think is it um he's obviously incredibly talented the I'm not going to call it pseudoscience, but the, 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 it can wear on you a little bit. I, I think it's, I think it's for being around him in person. I don't think it's manufactured. I think it's genuinely what he loves to talk about, what he's interested in, what he's into, what he studies. I don't think it's fake at all. And that makes me like him more. The more I was around him in person, the more I realized like, if you're just reading the press clippings or watching his actions, I can see how you might think, Oh, this is, this is kind of lame. But I think once you're around him and realize that, there's a lot of authenticity to it. He's a good guy. Like he, this is just really what he's into. You starting to like him a little bit more. Um, to answer your question, man, I wish Matthew Wolf was going over there. He I know. Is such, he is. I mean, I love watching that kid play. He's got that crazy golf swing. Hits it seven million miles. Um, charismatic. He's ah, just clutch as hell. You know, just having an unbelievable year. I wish we were going to see him over there. That would probably be my answer just because I think he's just so ridiculously extremely talented. I'll give you another guy who has been around a lot and we've talked about some, but I think would be awesome to see him get back just based on his own popularity. And this is the native Texan in me talking a little bit, but I think if Jordan Spieth put together a run and was, and had a big week um, of those younger players for him to get back into the top of the game. um, He is insanely popular in the United States. I think underrated I think it's underrated how much he's beloved by a lot of the fans out here. And really, I, I I was going to say I was I was going to say that Jordan Spieth is golf's biggest villain right now. The biggest villain, really? Yeah, like I I I can't find anyone who likes Jordan Spieth. All he does is maybe it's just because I'm in the internet bubble of we love ball striking and we don't like luck boxes who chip in every single time which Spieth does. Uh, all he does is whine and complain every time that he's on TV, and it takes him 20 minutes to hit the ball. Okay. All right. I see your, uh, these are valid statements you've made. Um, I, I tend to root for him. I think that the perception of him now, look, I know earlier this season, he went on that crazy run where he's making everything he looked at from like 30 feet. And that's like the number one performance type thing. That's positive. We remember about him in 2015 when Jordan Spieth was the player of the year, he had a higher strokes gain T to green rank than a strokes gain putting rank. I mean, his ball striking ability at his best is vastly underrated. Now, I know it's that human element thing I talked about earlier. 
we just tend to remember like the crazy 40 foot putt he made stint in Stinson's face at the tour championship or the big putt at Chambers Bay to take the lead. And, you know, we tend to remember him hitting a lot of wild tee shots and think he's not a great ball striker. Jordan Spieth at his best is one of the five best iron players on the planet. So I, I know that I think there might be a little bit of, look, the stuff with his caddy can, can wear on you, especially as a fan, you know, he tends to get a little bit whiny and you get a little bit tired of it. There may be a little bit of overexposure there, but I mean, look, America loves a winner, man. The world loves a winner. And I think that if he, if he put it together and got back into the good graces of, of golf fans everywhere with a couple of, you know, dazzling performances in the weekend, especially at the Open Championship, he was the 54-hole leader at the Open last year. People forget. He was right there and just had a terrible Sunday. We all forget because Sunday was crazy with Tiger taking lead and Frankie and Rory going nuts and Rose and all that. So we tend to forget that. But he was right there. He had the 54-hole lead last year at Carnoustie, had the chance to go back-to-back. So um, that's my pick. I stand by my statement. <laughs> Dan- internet bubble and your negativity well it's just funny because at the beginning <laughs> of last year spieth reeled off what is it here from tournament of champions through the charles schwab at colonial he only lost strokes t to green once like he was out of this world awesome t to green and that's when he was losing like three to four strokes per event on the greens and like what's going yeah. on with jordan spieth why can't he putt? And then all of a sudden, the putting got completely rectified, and he lost the ability to drive the ball. And it was just, ever since, like, his game has just been so inconsistent. You see it, like, you even saw it at Pebble for two rounds. Yep. Like, he was out of this world good. It's just been so long since he's strung together four consecutive rounds of high-end golf that it takes to win. And it just feels like that middle tier, even the younger tier of players, and obviously he's a part of that. He's only 25 years old. I think a lot of us forget that. But this new yeah. crop of players is just so good that there's no more room for error. Like, you need to be on for all four rounds. You can't have a 74 mixed in it. Like, that's the Tommy Fleetwood problem. Just once a week, he's going to shoot 74. He might shoot 63 the next round, but there's one round at every major where Tommy just blows up, and it prevents him from winning anything. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm not predicting Jordan's going <laughs> to win next week. I was saying that I did. That was my answer to of the under 25. What would be my favorite story or under 27 or so? I'm not predicting it's going to happen. I don't think it will. I think you got to show me a lot more consistency before I make that bet. But you know, that's just to be clear. I think it's also funny hearing you say that. How fast the shine of that high school class of 2011 that we talked about, like every week for four years has now been completely usurped by this in like a month by the Wolf, Hovland, Morikawa. Like it's, it's crazy how quick, you know, like um, Chris Rock once said, here today, gone today. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's amazing how quick the turnover was for, um, you know, from the Spieth, Thomas, Berger, Griot type class to these, uh, these younger kids who are, you know, unbelievably talented and fun to watch. So before we get out of here, I did want to kind of throw some names at you to see if they would fit the mold of player we kind of talked to. We've talked about different trends, certain skill sets, and even the age of the winner of the British Open over the years. A lot of this leads me to Mark Leishman, crazily enough. I just feel Mm. like if the wind is up, he's a very good wind player. He's had a lot of success at British Opens before. And basically since the Masters this year, his ball striking has remained on point where the putting has kind of got away. Very good short game player as well that... I don't think you're going to hear a lot of people talk about him. I'm not even really 100% sold on it, but it just seems like it could be that type of winner this type of round. I think that before you even said his name, that's a, that's a guy I had circled who I really like. Um, 
like you said, in terms of the traits in his game, the way he's been playing, his past success on these type of courses, um, nearly won an open championship a couple years ago. Um, you know, he always tends to play better in the big events. You know, there's guys who are in that class, like Kepka is the super extreme of that trend, but guys like Louis Oosthuizen, I put Mark Leishman in that type of group too, where they always tend to ratchet their game up in the big championships. Um, he fits that kind of veteran mold I like too. And if the wind blows and distance isn't that big of a, an advantage for some of the marquee guys, I think he's a, I think he's a great mold. He fits that mold to a T for me. He is somebody that I would put a little bit on at the window uh, next week. Yeah, Leishman right now coming in at 66 to 1 to win the British Open. The other guy, wow. and obviously he's 80, the guy that I'm looking at right now is 80 to 1. He was actually second uh, at Portrush in 2012, the Irish Open, finishing minus 14 in a three way tie with Anthony Wall and Fabrizio Zanotti. But he has two top 10s before the Scottish Open coming in, a good first round uh, as we're recording at the Scottish right now. But it's Rafa Cabrera Bayo that yep. he's just a really good links player. Awesome links player, won the Scottish Open, was it last year or two years ago? Two years ago. Two years ago, and then he followed up with, I think, a top 10 at the Open the next week. Um, very good history on links courses. Also fits that veteran mold. You've, you read my mind two times in a row, man. That's somebody who I really like, too, especially at a number that low. He's one of those guys we were talking about, like the top 10, top 20 bets. You might be able to get, like, for top 10, you might be able to get like, I don't know, 12 to 1, I want to say, maybe like 9 to 1. He's somebody I would definitely put a few on for that. He fits a lot of those same kind of trends, the age. You know, I thought of it today watching him play at the Scottish Open. You mentioned recording Thursday of the of the Scottish. He feels a lot like, like a European Gary Woodland in terms of what his career arc has been. Um, you know, physically, you know, impressive guy to watch play golf. Um, not a ton of wins, but, you know, he's picked off a few here or there, hadn't won a major yet, same kind of age range, same kind of world ranking profile. Um, you know, I kind of like Rafa to have a good week next week as well. It's funny, Woodland, Leishman, and Rafa are all exactly 35 years old as of the start of the Open Championship. So that is, if, if that's the key number, that's the number that I'm going to end up going with. They'll probably end up making my betting card uh, towards the end of the week. The final thing I did want to ask you about is, as it pertains to Tiger, because this is something that I noticed at Pebble Beach when the, the weather wasn't great. I'm looking at the weather right now, and whether it's today, all the way through next week, it doesn't appear like any day during the British Open is going to be 60 degrees Fahrenheit. It's going to be between 50 and 60, and for anyone who's European or Canadian who has no idea what that means, like myself, that's like 13, 14, 15 degrees Celsius, which is not like super nice golf weather, and it seems like Tiger needs hot weather at this point because he looks kind of stiff out there when it's cold. He is 43. He's had 7,500 back surgeries. I would imagine warmer weather does help him. From a game standpoint, I like any golf tournament where Tiger doesn't need to hit his his driver into the fairway. So like Carnoustie last year where he could hit three, four iron, five wood off every tee that didn't matter. Augusta nationally doesn't have to hit a lot of drivers and the rough isn't penalizing at all anyway. Um, You know, those are the kind of golf courses I like. I don't like hearing – when it comes to Tiger, that the rough is supposed to be really penalizing next week. I'm kind of a wait and see on that. You know, that's one of those things where when I, I'll believe that the rough is really tough at a links course in Northern Ireland, you know, when I see it, but that's what I hear. And then that leads me to not like picking Tiger for this. Um, I kind of stick with your point. Yeah. About the cold weather. Look, he's, 
anytime the weather's not great, it does look like it's tough to get around. I know we microanalyze every movement the guy makes and have for 20 years. Um, so it, maybe look a little bit too into it, but um, if the rough is penalizing, if the course, um, I think if the, ironically though, so cold air isn't going to help him, but I think if the course is windy and it brings people together and it turns into, you know, target practice with experience, which is kind of like the kind of golf that Tiger's going to be really good and really successful at and really have an advantage of because he's statistically one of the best iron players on the planet the last 18 months. If it's, if it's around 60 degrees Fahrenheit, yeah, that might be a little bit too cool for him, but um, it's an interesting theory you have. I kind of would, I kind of adhere to it though. I kind of like it, but um, it's going to be tough for him to get loose if it's real cold out. All right. If you had to pick one, we always see one random old dude show up at the British Open. Who's it going to be this year? Is it is it is Furyk qualify for that yet? He's in the category. He's certainly in the discussion. I have to take a look at all the different old guys who are in the field. Um, you know, Els. Uh, yeah. Or, well, Ernie had to withdraw with an injury. Oh, um, so did Kevin Na actually. I thought that oh, oh, Ernie might point out Kevin Na actually withdrew from the British Open today. Like, does Darren Clark have any shot here? His son works at the course. <laughs> I mean, that'd be fun to see uh, maybe Darren make the cut. Like, that'd be a nice little Friday afternoon story. Um, I don't see him, you know, he hasn't really played a lot of competitive golf the last several years, you know, a couple times on the Champions Tour. But he's out enjoying life. I wish I could uh, live like Darren Clark for a while. Um, uh, I think Fiora could probably qualify for that. Now, if the wind's up, uh, that certainly helps him, as we talked about. It brings the brings the field closer together. Distance is less of an advantage. I mean, Fury played great at the Players Championship. He's had some great bursts of golf here in the last um, six, eight months or so as he's finally gotten healthy again. Um, if if, if Furyk's the guy who's in that old man group, then yeah, I'd, I'd say we we clump him in there. You know, it's not as uh, frequent I think as the Masters, where it seems like Bernhard Langer or Fred Couples is in contention every Friday and sat every year on a Friday and Saturday at the Masters. But we tend to see it every once in a while at the Open. So. Um, yeah, I'd probably go with Furyk. That'd probably fit, but he's not even 50 yet. I don't know if he qualifies as the uh, old man class. Uh, the the last bit of info I could find on Portrush was the British Amateur was hosted here in 2014 or 2016. I don't even have the proper date on that. 2014. And Xander Lombard lost in the finals, and he will be in the field next week. So that is uh, something. Big, and big he had for a, you Xander Lombard fans. Very big. Hey, he was top 10 last week at the Irish, I believe. Yeah, yeah, no, Absolutely. So if you want someone who's like a thousand to one, there, there's someone to look at. Maybe a top 20 bet is probably the more proof. You might need to round out your six on your DraftKings lineup. You know? Yeah, hey, he's, he's basically the league min when it comes to DraftKings next week. But Justin Ray, at Justin Ray Golf on Twitter, the 15th club. Tell everyone what you got on the go this week because you're going to be there, right? Uh, yeah, we'll be on site working with Sky Sports all week. Um, 15thclub.com, you'll get uh, preview articles Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Uh, big analyst roundtable, all the crew from 15th Club talking about the course, guys we like, uh, more perspectives than just me, our whole team. That'll come out on Wednesday. Um, 10 notes to know or the 10 best notes that I come up with working throughout the day. Um, we'll have one of those after each round, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, stay locked onto our Twitter feed all week. We'll have all kinds of great info for you. Um, help you make bets, uh, tell the stories, all the interesting stuff you need, impress your friends, all that good stuff. So 15thclub.com, at 15thclub, at Justin Ray Golf. Come check us out. 
Uh, so Justin's going to have his best info to help you win money. If you tune into my Monday show with Jeff Feinberg, that'll be the best info for you to lose money. Because just if you bet on who we bet on, <laughs> you're not actually in fairness, Feinberg hit Woodland at the US Open. And that made up for like the last 10 majors anyway. So Feinberg's doing all right. Me, I basically haven't hit a winner at a major since I picked Danny Willett to win the Masters. So I'm hoping that this one, maybe I'll pick Danny Willett again. Maybe he'll come through for me. Who knows? But hey, it does- two, year, two years in a row, I cashed at Ladbrokes with the winner. Spieth in 17, Frankie last year. So hoping to make it three in a row. Fingers crossed. But now that I've said it out loud, I'll, I'll definitely be tearing up all my tickets Thursday night. Yeah, it sounds like you want to bet Ricky from what I've gleaned from this. Yeah, yeah, it's I kind of do. I, I think it's just a great story. Um, I'd like to see him play better on the weekend at the Scottish Open. But, um, you know, it feels like Ricky Fowler and the two guys you mentioned, Leishman and Cabrera Bayo. I like them as kind of a little bit off the radar, too. All right, so Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I'll be back with coverage. There'll be a live chat, 1 p.m. Eastern time next Wednesday Wednesday, with Reed Fowler. I'll have my finalized picks. We'll have a weather report, and we'll be taking all of your questions that day, too. And if you want to get into the close to $1,000 worth of giveaways for DraftKings at the British Open, all you need to do is smash the like button for this episode, leave your DraftKings handle in the comment section, tell me what you think the winning score is going to be. Rate, review, and subscribe. Five stars, DraftKings handle. Something nice about the show for the audio podcast. And then follow me on Instagram at the PME. Heart any British Open photo that pops up and leave your DraftKings handle in the comment section. And boom, you are in all the draws and I'll be giving away periodic money all throughout the week. So you got to tune in to find out if you won. Spoiler alert, if you just check your account and you have more money, turns out you probably won. Anyway, I'm Pat Mayo. Have fun with the British Open. My article will be out on the weekend on DKPlaybook.com. So hit that first for a first look and I'll see you next time. Experience! Experience!